Welcome back to the International Chronicles of the Chester Fritz Professors. This story, The Shanghai Gambit, is perhaps the closest to my heart for three reasons. First, it intersects the life of Chester Fritz and his friend André Bellamy. The friendship between these two men is what gave rise to this entire project. Second, I've spent considerable time in Shanghai, and I'm excited to incorporate different details from my experiences walking the streets. And lastly, this story is the linchpin, connecting the Chronicles of Chester Fritz to Lovecraft's Mythos and to Chambers's The King in Yellow. The intercom switched from English to Mandarin as the co-pilot attempted to replicate the English-language message delivered by the captain. It was a good enough attempt, but the co-pilot struggled with the tonal aspects of Mandarin. It had not been noticeable when delivering the standard welcome message, but the announcement that the flight was rerouting slightly to stay on the northern edge of an early-season tropical depression was just enough to push the co-pilot out of his linguistic comfort zone. Cynthia glanced out the window of the 747 knowing she was unlikely to catch a glimpse of the storm from 30,000 feet up, even if her view was not limited by her position in the middle seat. The gentleman to her left was not making use of his window. Instead, he sat, head bowed, muttering a prayer of some kind. Cynthia had exchanged polite introductions with the man during seating. He made no secret of his intention to proselytize in China. To Cynthia's eyes, the man's outward confidence was incompatible with his overabundance of nervousness about flying and his underabundance of language skills. He thus resembled the Catholic missionaries that had run the elementary school she had attended in Taiwan. The man even had the pinkish pallor of the Western priests. Not wanting to stare, Cynthia turned her attention away from the praying man and found the man to her right was also studying the would-be minister. She had not had a chance to make introductions to this other man. Their communication had been limited to the polite gestures and nods that accompanied the in-flight meal services and the occasional trip to the restroom. The man smiled politely, and Cynthia found herself going lightheaded, a roaring of the engine taking on a higher-pitched buzzing of billions of flies. She shuddered and tried to turn away. The man noticed her discomfort. I'm sorry, good lady, he said with a deep, rumbling Arabic accent. I did not mean to make you uncomfortable. He flashed a large smile at Cynthia, and she was struck by the brightness of the man's teeth against dark skin. She had heard from a dentist friend about a man who had gargled with bleach in a do-it-yourself teeth-whitening attempt. The effect had been to eat away all of the protective enamel, leaving a perfect white of living bone behind. I am General Ilotha, but I am not in uniform, nor in my country, and you may call me Nile. Cynthia nodded, introduced herself, and exchanged simple pleasantries. At the first lull of their conversation, the man leaned into Cynthia's space and said in a low voice, I hope I am not being too forward, Miss Cynthia, but are you also a Christian? As he posed the question, Niall inclined his head to the would-be missionary, who was finishing up whatever prayer he had been reciting. Cynthia considered insisting that the general use her title of doctor, but given that he had relaxed his own title, it seemed rude to challenge him on such a thing. Instead, she answered truthfully, my father was Catholic, and my mother was Confucian, but not exactly religious. I never took to either practice. Cynthia sensed a stirring from the missionary, but her attention was locked on the general. In my country, Egypt, Christians are strange, but American Christians are the strangest of all. How do you mean? 
the missionary interjected, all but cutting off the general. Cynthia saw the black man's eyes blaze, but his face remained a mask free of any emotion. Miss Cynthia and I were sharing a private conversation. General Ellotha stated, but, but you seem to be curious about Jesus and his followers, and I would be happy to... Is your god black? Ellotha interjected. Um... The missionary stammered, his confidence wavering, perhaps from the pointed nature of the question, but more likely from the fact that the general had spoken over the top of the missionary. While Cynthia was all too familiar with men speaking over her, she suspected it had been a long time since the white man had experienced such an interruption. With the shock of being denied unrestricted control of the dialogue fading, the missionary responded, I don't think that God has color. He's for all people. The general nodded, and then countered, but... Your Bible says God fashioned man in his own image, and the first humans were black. I don't think we know what race Adam and Eve were. It doesn't really make sense to talk about creation in that way. Before the Tower of Babel and the scattering of Earth's people, there were no races. But you do not dispute, the general continued, that the God of Christians prefers to side with the oppressed rather than the powerful. His chosen people were repeatedly enslaved and conquered, when he sent his son into the world, he was placed among the colonized, not the colonizers. And even if, as you say, your god does not have color, he is certainly not white. You're not a Christian, the missionary asserted. The observation was delivered as if it were a rebuttal, but all three of them recognized it for what it was. The general's smile was bright, wide, and predatory. Cynthia noted that the man's teeth seemed to narrow and sharpen. The gods of this world have never had authority over me. I am what you might call a free agent. The missionary blanched the general's declaration. He turned toward the window, muttering about blasphemy. Cynthia saw a flicker of joy in the general's eyes. It was there for just a moment before the veneer of the perfectly controlled gentleman reasserted itself. He smiled at her apologetically, and Cynthia noted the sharpness of his teeth, which she had perceived earlier was gone. The tea service came and went, and Cynthia found herself recounting the most intimate details of her life to Nile. He listened with an intensity that Cynthia had never before encountered. He wasn't listening to learn the answer, nor was he listening to formulate his own response. The man was listening as an act of being present in the moment. It was as if interacting with her in that very moment required all of his focus. Miss Cynthia, do you have friends in China? He asked her, and instead of saying no, or saying she had never been to China before, she told him everything. She told him how her grandparents had fled to Taiwan as part of Chiang Kai-shek's great retreat. She talked about how her paternal grandfather had been a mid-level bureaucrat in the Kuomintang and had been able to fall back with his wife and young son. The story of her maternal grandfather followed. She recounted how he had been among the enlisted that had been airlifted to Taiwan, where he had eventually married. Cynthia told how she had grown up listening to Chiang's speeches on the radio, laying out plans for the return. She had not thought about those speeches in years, but as the story of her life tumbled out, she realized how powerful they had been, how important they had been to her in her formative years. By the time she was 14, she had learned to discount this propaganda. It had been a painful realization, but the reality was that the world had forsaken Taiwan, and there would be no return. But you were on a flight to Shanghai, General Nyalotha observed. What business could a nice nationalist girl have in a city that birthed Mao's revolution? Cynthia fought with every fiber of her being. She wanted to tell this man everything, and yet she held back. She managed to deflect the compulsion to share 
with the half-truth that she was traveling for work to conduct research. The general was somehow able to hear over the roar of the engine. He smiled at her and passed her a business card for her hotel. She had a hard time hearing, but she understood the key details of his offer. He was a regular at the Fairmont Peace Hotel. Cynthia pocketed the card and sipped at her tea. The gate guard scrutinized Cynthia's passport in a performative act of security before asking her to write down her name in the logbook. Dr. Zhang watched silently as the farce played itself out. Satisfied that Cynthia was properly documented, the security guard allowed Dr. Zhang to escort her onto the campus, and the two women wove their way through the campus along winding stone paths bordered by a thick forest of bamboo. They emerged from the forest at the center of the campus. Directly ahead of them was a statue of Mao. To the left was a classic turn-of-the-century Western-influenced building, while to the right was a crude concrete building, demonstrating the worst of brutalist architecture. Dr. Zhang led Cynthia to the right. As they passed through the stark concrete building, Cynthia was reminded of American media depictions of inner-city schools, rampant graffiti, crumbling infrastructure, and dull-eyed students. Dr. Zhang led her to one of a set of European-style houses that had been set up as international centers. There was a Japanese house, a British house, a Scandinavian house, and an American house. At the American house, Cynthia was served tea, while Dr. Zhang retrieved materials from her office. In accompaniment to the tea, Cynthia was treated to a CD of John Coltrane's music. She passed the time making small talk in English with a group of students. The students had been huddled anxiously in the adjoining room and had been debating in Mandarin if they should approach the American. She got the sense that they had gathered in hope of practicing English with a native speaker, but were disappointed to find that the American guest was Han rather than white. It was an odd inversion of the subtle racism she had faced her entire life as an immigrant. Dr. Zhang returned an hour later with a series of large cardboard tubes. She bid Cynthia to join her at the large dining room table where she uncapped one of the tubes and extracted a yellowed map of Shanghai. As Cynthia watched, the woman withdrew from the other tubes plastic sheets that had been marked with either permanent or erasable markers. The sheets of clear plastic were marked on the corners to indicate how they should be laid over onto the brittle 1937 map. As Cynthia studied the characters penned across the plastic sheets, she began to get a sense of the professor's system. Troop movements and skirmishes were laid out in detail with notations denoting days and fatalities. Cynthia had been uncertain how much to share of her true interests with the old professor. Partly, her concern was in not wishing to be thought insane, and part of it was a desire to avoid potentially sensitive questions. Cynthia was well aware that she was investigating state secrets, old state secrets, but state secrets nonetheless. As long as the conversation remained one of history and geography, there was little risk of betraying confidence or frightening Dr. Zhang. As Cynthia stared at the mass of plastic and ink, she realized there was almost no chance of deciphering any sort of pattern without Dr. Zhang's encyclopedic knowledge. She chose her words carefully, sticking to history and to geography. There was a French doctor working with a commentang. She began, I was told he set up a system of booby traps in part of the city. Cynthia proceeded, hoping that Dr. Zhang would not press for too many new details. The defenses wouldn't have left casualties, she said. It would be sort of a... a black hole? Cynthia watched the Chinese professor closely. 
expecting some kind of negative reaction. Her description was vague, but it was also as precise an explanation as she dared to offer. Thankfully, Dr. Zhang did not react to the absurdity of her inquiry. Rather, she began layering plastic sheets over the top of the map. The woman retrieved an erasable marker from one of the cardboard tubes and began circling areas of the map that exhibited abnormalities that occurred during each year of the occupation. Cynthia kept a mental list of the neighborhoods, purging item after item as Dr. Zhang layered new sheets of plastic over the city map and describing shifts and patterns of violence and occupation. At the end of the process, there was but one neighborhood that had consistently been aberrant, Shintandi. Cynthia pawed at the nightstand in search for her glasses. The alarm clock read 3.28 a.m. Her circadian rhythm was signaling that it was time to get up, but she was desperately tired. Knowing it was a mistake, Cynthia kicked off the covers and turned on a light. She had work she could do, and so she booted up her laptop. As Windows 98 loaded, Cynthia moved to retrieve a folder of journal articles from her computer bag. As her fingers closed around the zipper, she paused. The tiny bit of lint that she had wedged into the track of the zipper was gone. It was a little thing, but it was enough to send prickles of alarm cascading across her skin. Cynthia stood. She turned slowly in a full circle, searching the room with a careful eye. Nothing else was missing or out of place. She retrieved a nail file from her purse, and after some thought began investigating the various electrical outlets. The file functioning as a makeshift screwdriver. There would, she reasoned, need to be a power source for any long-term listening device, particularly if it contained a transmitter of some kind. Cynthia considered the possibility that the device might be battery-powered and changed regularly, but such a device would be large and would have serious memory storage limits. After checking the sixth and final outlet, Cynthia accepted that she was being paranoid. It was silly. A bit of lint slipping free wasn't really proof of anything. It could have come loose when she moved her bag. Adrenaline dissipated, leaving a delusional fog of sleep deprivation in its wake. Cynthia abandoned her search for a listening device and turned her attention to bed. If she could manage two more hours of sleep, she would be halfway functional in the morning. Her circadian rhythm was against her, but when she flopped into bed, sleep grabbed a hold of her and dragged her under. The pedestrian crosswalk light flipped from orange to white, and Cynthia moved with the crowd that pushed its way into the flow of traffic, using the massive bodies to halt the stream of cars that were largely indifferent to traffic lights. Cynthia had learned fairly quickly that a single pedestrian was at the mercy of cars, motorcycles, and trucks. A group, however, had the power to force vehicles to yield. Social dynamics, rather than rules, governed the streets of Shanghai. The realization had angered her. Cynthia's first reaction had been scornful, almost irrational. The logic of the Chinese Civil War took on an entirely different meaning when she saw how the mainlanders queued for the subway or crossed the street or respected checkpoints. Having successfully navigated the crossing of Chongqing Road under the elevated highway, Cynthia turned right to investigate the northern section of the French concession. She explored the southern and eastern sections of Shintandi as systematically as she could manage over the past two days yet she had been unable to locate any of the landmarks identified in Dr. Bellamy's notes. It was possible that the city had been rebuilt from the ground up, but many other elements of the early 1900s remained in place. Many of the street-facing shops still had the uncomfortably low ceilings installed during the Chinese Civil War when refugees flooded Shanghai 
and property owners installed intermediate stories into buildings to rent to refugees who had sufficient silver. Similarly, the more affluent residential neighborhoods retained the stonework architecture of 1920 Shanghai. She had wandered the paths of Fuxing Park that morning. There was an undeniable beauty to the park, and she had not really minded the light rain. The park bustled with different pockets of people. There were dozens playing badminton, and nearly 50 older Chinese men and women practicing Tai Chi. She passed a pair of toothless old men sitting on a bench, staring up into the trees. She had followed their gaze as she approached, assuming that they were bird-watching. She noted instead a pair of bird cages clipped to tree branches. Dozens of ropes and carabiners along low-hanging branches indicated other places for bird cages to hang. Cynthia stopped and asked the men if she could take a picture of their birds. The men nodded and shuffled over to stand with the bird cages while Cynthia took the picture. They grinned at her and waved. She thanked them. As she slipped the camera into her purse, she pressed a button on a second device to mark the GPS coordinates. Cynthia waited while the device triangulated against three or more satellites, and then supplied a set of latitude and longitude coordinates along with the time. The coordinates supplied by the U.S. military GPS system were purposefully incorrect. The Air Force adjusted the error at more or less random time intervals, but there were several known locations that posted minute-by-minute -minute readings from the GPS system. The coordinates were usually available on the internet after 24 to 48 hours, and she had found an internet cafe near her hotel where she could download the files needed to correct her coordinate readings. Cynthia continued north out of Fuxing Park, taking GPS readings every 100 meters or so. She stopped for lunch at a local noodle restaurant, giving her order to a 13-year-old girl. The girl's hair was pulled back in a ponytail, and she wore a drab gray and yellow uniform that looked well-worn possibly a hand-me-down in a family business. The girl delivered the order to the kitchen and returned with a Diet Coke and chopsticks for Cynthia. Instead of turning away, the girl hesitated for a moment before pointing at Cynthia's notepad. You speak English? The girl asked in halting but functional English. Cynthia nodded and explained that she was an American. The girl's face came alive and she began telling Cynthia how she always tried to wait on foreigners so she could practice her English. Cynthia complimented the girl on her proficiency. I must get better, the girl said firmly. Did you learn at home or at school? Cynthia smiled. I learned at school. I started about your age. The girl beamed and gave a giggle. Cynthia noted that her teeth were slightly uneven. It was, Cynthia reminded herself, a relatively mild defect in the girl's smile, but the American obsession with teeth would have demanded it be corrected. Cynthia had endured braces in her early twenties as part of a broader assimilation effort. A call from the kitchen sounded, and the girl retreated. She returned a minute later with a bowl of beef noodle soup and a side of green beans with red chilies. I practice my English so I can work at KFC. Do you know KFC? It is an American company. Cynthia confirmed that she knew KFC. Why do you want to work at KFC? Cynthia asked, trying to understand the girl's ambitions. I want to travel, and maybe if I can become manager, I can go to the United States for training. I want to visit Japan and Australia too. I want to go to South Korea and the United States and maybe Europe. I hope you get it all, Cynthia replied with more sincerity than she had expected. There was something endearing about the girl's earnest pursuit of so modest a dream. The door to the restaurant opened, admitting a party of four. The girl flashed a toothy smile and returned to work. Cynthia had been marking coordinates for two hours after lunch when she saw the museum. It was a beautiful gray and red brick house. The sign out front and the People's Republic's flags announced the house as a museum, 
dedicated the First Party Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. Cynthia felt a knot in her stomach as she approached the house. There was nothing good that would come from the museum, but she entered it in spite of her reservations. She wandered through rooms, looking at memorabilia and artifacts, highlighting the foreign occupation of China, the early life of the party members, the vision of Sun Yat-sen. That last detail set her on edge. As a young girl, she had visited the Memorial Hall in Taipei. She had stood between the massive marble likenesses of Chiang Kai-shek and Sun Yat-sen, the twin fathers of the Chinese nation, facing each other from their seats at opposite ends of the hall. In the central living room, she found a large table surrounded by wax likenesses of the 13 representatives of the Chinese Communist Party. She picked out the faces, Mao, Dong, and the traitor Cheng Gongbo. Cynthia felt sick to her stomach. These 13 men had imprinted their special kind of madness on the world. They had made up-down. They had torn up thousands of years of civilization by the roots and repotted it in poisoned soil. Cynthia felt her fists clenching in anger. Her family had lost so much. She could not picture her grandfather without the wince caused by pain from his hip. He had lived on the eighth story of a Taipei apartment building and would make the climb at least twice a day, breathing through the pain of each step. She remembered stories of her family's estates in Canton, told by her father, who had never set foot on the mainland. The men before her, depicted with such reverence, had destroyed the China that could have been, the China her family would have made, and there was no way to make it right. Dr. Zhang was waiting for her at the restaurant entrance. Staff welcomed her through intricately carved doors and past jade inlaid furniture. The restaurant was gaudy in a style that felt both traditional and modern. Cynthia had concerns about the restaurant from the start. The price required to secure the reservation had been absurd, yet Professor Zhang had told her that an elite restaurant would be the best way to secure the cooperation of the director of the Shanghai Municipal Museum. A line of staff guided them through the front of the restaurant, past the private dining niches, and out to the stonework patio. The view of the patio prompted a sharp intake of breath, the warm night air filling Cynthia's lungs. The oriental pearl tower shone like a purple and gold jewel on the far side of the Hangpu River. Cynthia followed the staff to the table, where four middle-aged professionals were working their way through a bottle of Baijiu. Professor Zhang made introductions. Cynthia had not expected such a large group, but she was reliant on Professor Zhang's connections. If she chose to invite the director and vice-director of the Shanghai Municipal Museum along with the museum's chief historian, Cynthia would accept that decision. It would be a difficult conversation with the university's accounting office, but one could only cross one bridge at a time. Cynthia took her seat and did her best to make conversation with the four men. The news of the Columbine shooting had reached China, and there was an uncomfortable number of questions about the availability of weaponry to American students. Students are allowed to carry guns on campus, Cynthia had explained to the horror of her guests. But I've never seen a gun on campus. Maybe a couple of students keep them in their rooms, but it's never been an issue at the university, she explained. The elaboration seemed to confuse rather than to clarify. In the end, she found herself trying to explain the American fetish for rights. Yet there was no shared frame of reference that would make her explanation not sound insane. As the meal progressed from course to course, the conversation turned to less political topics. They discussed family and exams and life in Shanghai. 
The baijiu continued with each course, and Cynthia quickly realized that she was caught in a test of character. As the courses began trending toward desserts, Cynthia was able to direct the conversation around to the development and redevelopment of the Shintandi neighborhood. The museum's leadership had little interest in the topic and turned their attention to Professor Zhang and local gossip, leaving Cynthia free to query the historian Xiaoping Shi at length. Xiaoping was encyclopedic in his knowledge and was able to recount the dates of every major building project and public works deployment in Shintandi. As the restaurant staff cleared the table, Zhang and the museum executives retreated to a stone wall at the edge of the patio. They lit cigarettes and joked as the lights of Shanghai sparkled across the river. Cynthia took a moment to lay out a hand-drawn but detailed map of the former French concession on the table. The map was the color-coded, showing routes that she had walked with dots, marking GPS locations. She had a dozen gaps marked in red on the map and pressed Xiaoping for details of the Lilong compounds in those red squares. Cynthia could smell the Baijiu and the man, and as he leaned across to peer at her map, after bending toward the map until his nose almost touched, he pulled back and retrieved a thick set of reading glasses. With glasses fitted into position, Xiaoping considered the map again. Cynthia tried to follow the man's rambling explanation. He was slurring slightly, and Cynthia began to sense that the man was trying to impress her with his command of the minutia of urban planning. After some gentle pressing, the man diagnosed the unexplored areas as blighted, abandoned in the efforts to modernize Shanghai. This explanation seemed hard to square with the massive investment the city had made in transportation and recreational infrastructure, or the explosion of foreign investment. Yet the apparent absence of known development projects in the various points seemed to confirm what Cynthia had come to suspect. Portions of the city were simply inaccessible. She had analyzed weeks' worth of GIS data and homed in on the unexplored areas centering on the southwest corner of the former French concession. She had returned to the area several times, seeking to map and document the missing sections, and had returned each time with a similarly censored set of coordinates. Reaching out to the Shanghai Municipal Museum had been a way to draw on the historical record to corroborate the stubborn gaps in the physical geography of the city. After it became clear that Xiaoping had little more of substance to offer, Cynthia politely excused herself. As she headed for the restroom, the historian joined the others along the stone wall at the edge of the patio, where the men were chatting up a group of women in dangerously unsteady heels. Cynthia stopped in front of the mirror to check her makeup and straighten her blouse. After weeks in t-shirts and shorts, the white polyester blouse felt stiff. The gray wool pencil skirt and matching jacket were a solid professional ensemble, but not well suited to the humid Shanghai nights. Cynthia rummaged in her purse for a roll of toilet paper. Some of the nicer restaurants provided a ration, but the general rule was, bring your own. Cynthia glanced up as her hand closed on the roll. She registered two women in the mirror. Something about the way they moved struck Cynthia as odd. Realization came to her as the needle stabbed into her neck. She tried to scream, but a hand was locked over her mouth. Her neck burned as a thick, cold serum was pressed into her veins. Her knees began to buckle, and the needle slid free, and Cynthia slipped into darkness. Cynthia's fate will be explored in the next episode. While the story was not originally conceived of as having two distinct parts, once the story was on paper, the break was quite clear. 
Splitting the story into two parts also helped resolve a COVID-19 related problem with the production of these stories. 14 months ago, I put in a request to the University of Washington for the diary of A.B. Rogers, a surveyor who worked on the Trans-Canadian Railway. I was hoping to incorporate details of Rogers' expeditions into the International Chronicles, but the archives have been closed and staff have been working remotely. Rogers' expedition still has a role to play in the Chronicles of Chester Fritz, but it will feature in the next collection, the North Dakota edition, which will hopefully be released in 2023.